Hello and welcome to One Great 150. I'm Alex. I'm Sabrina. And we're here with Brandon producer Nick. How's it going? Um, we're on our third episode, I believe. We are. Of our series um, of 15 figures over the course of 150 plus years. <laughs> Actually, we're more than 150 years back in this episode. Um, we'll be talking today about uh, Elzear Goulet, uh, the Red River Resistance, and the Reign of Terror. Um, I'll say up front, there are not a lot of laughs in this episode. Um, so definitely content warning for uh, violence, racism, um, sexual assault as well. Um, we're going to try not to get like super graphic, but this is essentially the story of four deaths, their causes and consequences. Okay. Um, and this is probably the episode I've been the mo ner most nervous about. Like just the highest stakes, you think? Like... I, or not well, stakes, like the most serious content? I think so. I think partly it's just a lot to cover. It was yeah. hard to kind of get everything in here, which yeah. you'll probably see from like the runtime of this episode. Well, I, I can't make any comments. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also, yeah, just a lot of really complex and controversial issues at hand here. Mm -hmm. um, so we did and get- it's not a part of our history that we talk about like a whole lot. No, that's true. We talk about Louis Riel. Yeah. Um, but that's about it. And even that is a pretty superficial talking yeah. most of the time. So we did get a little bit of help with this episode. We, um, we talked to Jean Taillé, who wrote a book that we both love called The Northwest is Our Mother. It's so good. Um, it's a history of the Métis Nation. It's written like as a popular history, like it's very readable, but also really well researched and also written from the Métis perspective. Which is not something I have seen before in a lot of books I've read. No, so. we'll, we'll get into like a little bit. I won't get... Too into the historiography, I don't think. Oh, but darn. <laughs> I know. I know everyone people, was clamoring for it. I know people want to hear more about that. But it is, I'll just say in short, that it's really valuable to have a history written from that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so throughout this episode, you'll be hearing uh, clips of Jean helping us to unpack some of this history. Um, so right off the bat, I asked her, uh, what is the Métis Nation? If you're saying, who are the Métis people? Who are their people? Their people are... The, the people are the descendants of the historic Métis Nation, and the turf, the traditional territory or the homeland or the motherland, is actually basically the prairie provinces, and then we can talk and argue about, sure. about the rest. Um, and it isn't just about being mixed ancestry, because some people have mixed ancestry and don't identify as Indigenous at all, and some people have it and they identify as First Nations. So the issue isn't what your genealogical or your blood mixture is. The issue is your identification with a political entity called the Métis Nation. And let's be clear that all First Nations are political entities. A nation is by definition a political entity. That means you're identifying with a people who have self-government and self-determination and laws and customs and traditions and a history and a shared um shared sense of solidarity it's that that you're mm -hmm. looking for the and so today i'm a descendant of that so that question felt important to me when i used to work in delivering school programs often in like the kind of older scripts it would basically be like so Europeans came to Canada, they married Indigenous women, and their children were the Métis. And that's not wrong. But it's also not totally correct either. Yeah. And I had a Métis coworker who really took issue with that at being like the summary, because there's not really any other nations where we put that much emphasis on like genetics and like heredity. 
Yeah. Right? Even down to, like, some really old things will be, like, you know, we'll t- be talking about, like, blood, right? Like, the right. amount of blood that you have from your... Yeah. Opinion. And so it gets a little weird. And so I think it was more important to have a, a slightly more... Um, nuanced definition yeah. going into this episode, which is going to be all about the Métis Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, but specifically, we're going to be focusing on uh, Goulet, Alzheimer Goulet. Um, so let's talk a bit about who he was before the Red River Resistance and okay. before everything goes a little bit crazy in yeah, this area. Okay. So he was born in 1836. So like many of the people we'll be talking about today, he's very young throughout yeah. this episode. Um, That's around when the Sarah Ballandin episode starts. So yeah. 1836. Oh, just so you know, roughly sort of what the area is like at that time. Yeah. Um, and he's part of a Métis, uh, French Métis fur trading family. Um, his mother was the daughter of a factor at Fort Pelly, and both his father and grandfather had been defenders of Métis rights in Red River. Um, in fact, this is interesting, his grandfather had been involved in the Battle of Seven Oaks. Oh, really? And had actually afterwards been tried but acquitted of murder. For oh. his involvement in it. Interesting. Yeah, so we're not going to talk more about that today, but so there's an interesting sort of family history there in terms of, um, yeah, these battles for Métis rights. Mm-hmm. His father had also been involved in this kind of letter-writing campaign to the HBC. Um, and Goulet goes to school in St. Boniface. Um, being from a fur-trading Métis family, he probably grew up going on the buffalo hunt as well. His yeah. dad was a was a buffalo hunter. Um and when he's young, he marries a young woman named Hélène from Pemina, whom he has six children with over the next decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he's t- 25, he becomes a mail carrier. He takes over his elder brother, Roger, or I think probably Roger, because they're French. Yeah. <laughs> um, he takes over his elder brother's route from Pemina to Upper Fort Garry. Okay. So three to four times a week, Goulet would either go by horse or dog sled, depending on the season, between the two places. Um, and you can imagine he becomes fairly well-known in both communities. Yeah. Um, by all accounts, he was well-liked. He was kind. Um, he also would have had to be pretty hardy. I don't want to, like, downplay what mail carriers do today. It's still a lot of walking. But, yeah. but it was a pretty arduous job. Yeah, and I guess, like, carrying... I don't know how much mail necessarily is coming in on any given day, but even that trek, especially in bad weather, can't have been easy. For sure. There were often stories about um, mail carriers, um, like, getting hypothermia or frostbite, getting lost, because there weren't necessarily, like, defined trails, right? Um, Or even dying. Um, And also, it was a really important task, right? Like, Mm. it it makes a huge impact when the mail doesn't arrive. Yeah. Um, Remember, we don't have rail access at this point. So it's just kind of, like basically off-road yeah. travel the entire way. Yeah. And I have to imagine that in addition to, like, letters and official kind of news bulletins, he would have been someone who was, like, in the know. Mm-hmm. Right? He would have been someone who, like, heard and transported less official information. Um, but Goulet's early life is, like, fairly normal, his kind of young adulthood. And I think he's an interesting example of how people who would otherwise have lived fairly normal lives can get kind of swept up in the events around them. Okay. Right? Like, if I think yeah. about someone like Riel, like, I think Louis Riel would have found a cause. Don't yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, it, he came by it naturally, too. His dad was also a fairly big Métis rights crusader. Yeah, so, like, what what I think is that, like, I feel like someone like Louis Riel probably would have found some crazy cause to fight for. Yeah. I shouldn't say crazy, but, like, some big cause is what yeah. I mean. He would have been... But I think, like... Goulet is someone who I think would have been passionate about local affairs. He might have joined city council, but I don't think his life would have taken the turns that it had if what was happening here had not been just so out of the ordinary. Okay. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Do you think it's the case with, like, Riel's other, like, not to spoil where this is going, but, like, people who are also involved in Riel's cabinet later? I do, yeah. I think think a lot of them kind of fall into that camp. Okay. Where they're sort of just have fallen into this situation where they feel that they have to do something. Yeah. Um, And a lot of these people who are not necessarily right at the center of things, right, in the Mm -hmm. way that Riel is, a lot of these people who are kind of orbiting around, Mm -hmm. just giving the contribution that they can, I suppose. Anyway, uh, he's delivering mail at this point in time. He's delivering mail. Um, so another thing I asked Jean to help explain was the context of Red River. So who's here? What were the tensions? Yeah. The population of Red River was uh, around 1870 was about 12,000 people. So of those 12,000, um, it was pretty evenly split between the sort of Anglophones and Francophones, although they would not have split it that way. They would have split it as Protestant and Catholic because religious identity was way more important than a language identity. And the fact is that most of them spoke French and English. In along the, what they would have called the upper red and the lower red are these parishes right? So there's St. Battelle is a parish, and St. Norbert is a parish, and St. Andrew is a parish. And so you have English parishes, and you have French parishes, which are really Catholic parishes, and Protestant parishes, right? So the, the, the area was divided that way. That's the groupings that people lived in, was these parishes. And so there's 12,000 people there, more or less. Of that, it's pretty evenly split. There's about 6,000 of the sort of Protestants, uh, English speaking, although let's drop the language. So Protestant parishes and about 6,000 in the Catholic parishes. Of that 12,000, almost um, 10,000 are below the age of 21. Oh, wow. So I I don't know if I realized that. Very young. So we would have called them, They legally, they were children, right? right. <laughs> so they, then when the when Louis Riel's negotiating for the children of the half-breeds, right? Mm. That's what he's talking about. So what's happening there is that you're getting this big critical mass of people and they had huge families, right? So every generation is having like 10 kids, right? So right. And they got married young <laughs> and they had big families. So there were a lot of kids under 21. Doesn't mean they were all like little toddlers. Probably a whole bunch of them are like, you know, 18 to 21 kind of um, age group. But it's important to remember that they're really young. Louis Riel himself in 1870 was only 24. Wow. Right? So, yes. so that's kind of Red River in a nutshell. There are also some Americans hanging around there. Um, and so, um, and some important ones. And the other thing that's going on in Red River at, at in the West at that time is you got to, you got to go back in what you know of American history at this mm-hmm. point in time, right? So the Americans are on their manifest destiny thing, which is right. all the way to the Pacific Ocean. We want to own it all. This is the period where they've just taken over what was it? two-thirds of Mexico, right? So California, Florida, um, New Mexico, Texas, that was all Mexico before. And the Americans have just, you know, done a lot to grab land there. And so what's going on in McDonald's brain 
and a lot of the people in Canada is they're worried that the United States is going to come in and take over the rest okay. of the northern mm -hmm. part too. The other thing that you got to remember is that wandering around the American West are all the Civil War soldiers are running around. Oh, yeah. And so that army could be pulled together like that if the Americans wanted to do it and mm -hmm. take over. So um, so that's kind of the political milieu that's going on um, in Red River at that time. So in that clip, Jean also mentions that there are concerns that the Americans are going to come. Right, yes, the looming threat. Yes, and take over areas of what we would now call the Canadian West. Yeah. Um, so I guess Canada, what, you know, this kind of smallish country that was then called Canada mm -hmm. compared to what it is now was looking to kind of shore up certain areas. Right. And so this episode is going to get like super bogged down in details and personalities, but it's hard to avoid. In it's, this. it's really hard to avoid, but the overarching context here is that there's going to be this land transfer from the HBC to Canada. Mm -hmm. So the context here is that the Hudson's Bay company had in the eyes of the British owned I don't know if you can hear my air quotes there. <laughs> um, the land where we are today since the late 1600s. Um, the problem here, of course, is that when the HBC took, it big air quotes, ownership um, of that land, there were already a ton of people living here. Mm -hmm. And those people, those nations had continued to live on the land throughout that period. But Canada really only recognizes the ownership of the HBC. Right? Canada, the it's, it's kind of new government and the crown as well. Um, and not the much more practical and kind of um, on the ground land use of the First Nations. Yeah. Well, if you listen to like Pegwis's speech in our earlier episode of the letter, there's things where he is talking about like learning later the Hudson's Bay Company was saying they owned the land and that not even like being of notice to a lot of the people here early on because like yes. what did it matter to them no a hundred percent for a lot of people the hbc really only plays a pretty nominal role in their lives yeah who are they you know and that's sort of what was going on with the Hudson bay company you have to understand they had a post here and then uh -huh. a few hundred miles away they'd have another post and they might have 16 guys in there or 12 or maybe only four uh, fine but what is that thousands and thousands of miles and thousands of people who have absolutely nothing to do with them or just regard them as the kind of local store. We go there in May and we pick up some tea and sugar and then we bugger off for the rest of the year, you know, and you think you own me? You think right. you're telling me what to do? No, it's, it's just this idea that they somehow ran the country is just completely wrong. They, they were there, but they were just running themselves. That's it. Right. So here we are around 200 years later. The HBC is about to sell that huge parcel of land to the new country of Canada for, I think, $300,000 pounds? Must have been yeah. pounds at the time. Canada is only like three years old at this point. Yeah. Um, so you and I were trying to talk about like metaphors to try and explain this. And it's really hard because it's not a situation that makes a lot of sense. No, it's very confusing. It's like we were saying, it's like if like Safeway tried to sell your house. <laughs> yeah basically right right and you're kind of like what do you mean this is the house where i've lived for, for whatever 40 years my grandparents owned this house and you're saying safeway owned it this whole time right <laughs> um and so the fact that this transfer is going to happen is known in red river 
And there have not been any attempts made to discuss the conditions of this transfer with the people living in this area. No, but that is a repeated thing with the Hudson's Bay Company. Oh, 100%. Never speaking to the people who actually live here about anything. God forbid. (laughs) You have a discussion with someone about what they want and need. Um... And yeah, so because there haven't been any discussions, there are real concerns that the Métis will lose the land that they've been living on mm-hmm. for, for years and years because they don't have, like, official permission from the Hudson's Bay Company to live on that land. Um, where they've been living and farming and making communities, right? And so people are getting really worked up. So that's the political, that, that's kind of the political atmosphere going on. They do not like the fact that Canada's trying to take them over without even bothering to talk to them, and they're angry. So what's going on is there's a sense all over Red River. Everybody's talking politics. Everybody is getting into groups to, well, we should do this and we should do that. It's 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 tense uh, politically, and it's vibrant. The other context around this is that Red River has had a really rough couple of decades here. Yeah. So in 1852, there was a massive flood. Yeah. There were then a series of droughts. The locusts. The locusts. Yeah. Those will get you. Um, so there are pictures of those big locusts, and I think a like preserved jar of them at City Hall because they put them in City Hall's first casket just to give you a glimpse of like how important. Yeah, those were these a locusts were repeated problem in the 1800s yeah. that these grasshoppers would come and just eat all of the crops. So yeah. Between the drought and the flood and the locusts, there's not, like, as much food, necessarily. Yeah, and no, I think people are kind of, like, wound up to begin with, if that makes yeah. sense. It's been stressful for years. Tensions are probably already high. A hundred percent. And I think the other important thing I want to mention is that the lack of negotiations isn't, like, an oversight. <laughs> yeah. Um, John A. McDonald didn't, like, forget that people were living here. He didn't want to think about them, right? No. <laughs> Absolute intentional for them. They want the land they want it populated by um, Protestant white people, and they want to get rid of this Métis problem, right? And they want, and for Indians, well, well, that's okay. We'll just stick them on reserves, right? You know, so um, and there's an attitude that you know you can just ignore the Métis into not being there anymore for something, which is a little bit stupid. But anyway, that's what they thought. So. Yeah. so Deliberate, absolutely deliberate. This is not an accident. None of this was an accident. It's yeah. just, it's um, it's just really, really bad um, politics and bad, bad, bad ideas based on really ugly um, belief system. But Ontario is largely um, British background and largely Protestant background. And most of them belong to an organization called the Orange Lodge. So there's a time in red in Canada, right around that time, when probably, you know, I'm, I can't remember what the numbers are, but you can probably guess that two thirds, at least, of the male population in Ontario is a member of the Orange Lodge. That includes Prime Minister, the Prime Minister, Johnny mm-hmm. McDonald. It includes... Um, you know, the governor general, it includes like pretty much everybody. Every mayor of Toronto for a hundred years was a member of the Orange Lodge. Oh, wow. Right? The Orange Lodge. So what? So what's the Orange Lodge? The Orange Lodge is an unabashedly, blatantly 
outspoken white supremacist group. That's exactly what they are. And they're not shy about advertising this, right? They are, they, they believe, and they even have a printed plan called Ascendancy. And that is a plan that they will populate all positions of power. So that's the mayors and the sheriff's office and the judges and the, you know, the fire chief and every, like every position of any power at all will be occupied by a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant man. Hmm. So, the, and they're not shy about this. This is what they absolutely believe the whole country should be. They hate Francophones. They hate Catholics. And I don't use those word, that word hate lightly. You know, the Métis have three strikes against them. They're too Indian, they're too French, and they're too Catholic. So the, they're a natural target for the Orange Lodge. So Jean points out that the diversity of Red River and the ways in which people are living and working together here is actually pretty unusual at this point mm -hmm. in the context of like Upper Canada, like in comparison to Upper Canada, and that this diversity is also like antithetical to what the Orange Lodge is looking to do. Yeah. Um, and like that Johnny McDonald, who is a member of the Orange Lodge, is trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, and people in Red River might not be familiar with the mandate of the Orange Lodge specifically, but they can definitely see what the Canadian government is doing. Yeah. yeah right? The Orange Lodge hadn't quite worked its grubby little mitts into Red River yet. No, nope, but, but they will. <laughs> and also, I mean, I feel like for like the Métis Nation as a whole, they've been seeing the Hudson's Bay Company try routinely to like take their land to stop their ways of life. Like sure. they would recognize the signs already. Yeah. Even exactly. if they're not explicit. So even if it's a different group of people with a slightly different group um, set of motivations, maybe. Yeah. The red flags are still there. The red flags are there. What they're trying to do is not that different from things the HBC has been trying to do for decades already. Mm -hmm. um, and the Canadian government is beginning to take practical steps in the late 1860s. So um, sending in surveyors is a big one. Right. Yes. Also sending in colonists, right? And specifically English, Protestant, Anglophone colonists. Mm -hmm. um, and so in response, the Métis began organizing, inspired by a certain Louis Riel. I wonder who that guy is. There's no really clear Métis leader, right? Mm -hmm. There are a few men around who are um, very well respected. So um, Louis Riel's father was one of them, but he's just died. So he's he's out of the picture. Um, James Sinclair isn't there anymore. Um, he's gone west. So there's local leadership, but one person who everybody will galvanize around or pretty much everybody not there and mm -hmm. so and the the older leaders in the metis are way too aligned with the hudson's bay company and so the younger people don't trust them okay mm -hmm. they see them they see these older guys as self-interested mm -hmm. and that they're working for themselves that they're not working for the metis people so uh that's the vacuum or that Thing that Louis Riel steps into. Um, and then the young people like him, A, because he's not, he doesn't have any vested interest in going one way or the other. Um, so they like him. He's also really educated and he was obviously very charismatic. Mm -hmm. Like th this is a man that people, the minute he spoke, people listened. Everybody listened to what he was saying. And that's 
those those people are rare when they come around and they're you know and you can tell i mean he would give talks in front of the saint boniface basilica in january when it's like 30 below and hundreds of people would stand there listening to him wow you got to be good (laughs) no kidding when their feet are freezing right (laughs) um, you know so um i think what happens is that like i said the atmosphere in red river is getting very tense and everybody's talking and talking and talking and talking and talking but they're not actually doing anything Mm. yet and that's where i think that riel um steps in and say and starts talking about well we need to do this not just talk about Mm. it um so this involves a few things all of which could easily be their own episode in terms of like methods of resistance but we'll try and like hit the highlights yeah if you want to know more that's why the northwest is our mother is a great book absolutely read it you'll get all of the things you need also there's no shortage on books on riel no no i mean you can go and read eight books on riel tomorrow if you feel like it (laughs) All in one day. Go crazy. (laughs) If you're really fast at reading. Um, So in July of 1869, the Métis create patrols to watch out for trespassers, i.e. surveyors. Mm -hmm. People who come in to measure the land to make new allotments for colonists. Yeah. Um, And Elzair Goulet at this point puts his support behind Riel. So he kind of stops his mail carrying effectively. And he becomes second in command to Amboise Lapine in the newly formed Métis Irregular Armed Forces. Irregular armed force is an interesting name. Yeah, so I think what they mean is that they're not all armed. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're irregularly armed. Okay. In any case, it's a, a Métis militia yeah. is maybe a simpler way of putting it, but that's just what it's called in kind of historical sources. Um, And a big thing that happens in um the fall of that year is the thing with the surveyor's chain. Are you familiar with this story? Uh, the, like, La Barriere or whatever? Or is that later? No, that um that comes a tiny bit later. Oh, no, very... I know the chain thing. But yeah. You should, yeah, explain it anyway. Okay, so um in October, Louis Riel is alerted by one of these patrols that surveyors are on the land of Edouard Marion, who's a Métis man. And Riel and the men in his party basically go to meet these surveyors. And there's this kind of dramatic story in which Riel steps on the surveyor's chain, effectively stopping them from working and that they then kind of send them away. Mm -hmm. So I think this story is kind of like semi-apocryphal. Like, I think it's almost sort of like, I think something similar to this did happen. Just maybe it's a little like blown up for dramatic effect later. Yes, yes, 100%. And like, I think it was probably like Louis Riel and the other people he were with maybe stepped on the chain or whatever. Um, in any case, though, that line, that event is often taken as the beginning of the Red River resistance. Okay. Um, but as you had mentioned before, um, the Ber- La Berrière happens soon. So in October, the same month, the Métis get word that Mil- William McDougall, who's the new Lu- Canadian lieutenant governor, he's on his way. Mm-hmm. Um, is he the one that travels up with like a piano and the piano falls oh. apart? <laughs> I, I don't remember that, but I think he probably is. He's I think he's that kind of guy. <laughs> there's a story about someone fancy arriving to Red River and like trying to bring something on the roads and the roads are so bumpy in the cart that whatever he is bringing falls apart. It's been ages since I've had to tell yeah. that story, but oh man, I'll have to see if I can if I can find that somewhere. If I can, I'll post it on on yeah. the on Facebook. Um, so in response to this though, is they begin building the barrier. Yes. Um, and there's a monument to that in St. Norbert. Yeah. Today. 
Um, so about 40 men set to building it to um, keep McDougal out of Red River. And it's like quite literally a physical barrier to keep out this new lieutenant governor because they're saying we haven't done negotiations yet. You don't get to come in. You until... don't get to come in until we've decided that, you know, this transition is happening in a way that we're OK with. Um, there are some initial attempts to disperse the barricade, but they fail. And so McDougal is actually stuck in Pemina. He's not able to come in for quite a while. Um, What's the barricade? Is it just like a wooden barricade? I haven't been able to find a ton of sources on like <coughs> what it was actually built of. Interesting. Yeah. I'd like to do more research onto that because I don't know. Yeah. It sounds like it was uh, hard to get around. Yeah. I mean, it must have been. It must have been a pretty notable structure. I think also it was probably manned. Yeah. That may have been the more significant part that like they had built a barrier and had people stationed there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, uh, McDougal is stuck in Pemina and Riel and his men also seize Fort Gary. So this is a big deal. Yes. Okay. Um, so they do this to, this is, maybe I should explain what a fort is, or do you want to explain what a fort is? People uh, probably know. It's one of, the, Upper Fort Gary is a fur trading post in Red River. So it is south of where the town of Winnipeg was at the time. So it's. If you know where Union Station is in Winnipeg, Upper Fort Gary Park is right across the street. That's where Upper Fort Gary was. That was yeah, the home of the Hudson's a, Bay Company. Yeah, and there's still a small number of sort of ruins there, I believe. Yeah, or at least like rem- there's a nice park there yeah, that explains everything. Yeah. But it's basically the site of the Hudson's Bay Company government yeah. in Red River. Yeah, so they seize that from the Hudson's Bay Company before the Canadian government can come in and set up there. Yeah. Um, and so this effectively prevents McDougal, yeah, and his men from moving into it. Um, and while Goulet is placing himself alongside Riel in seizing Fort Gary and in building La Berrière, his brother Roger is actually a magistrate and member of the Council of Assiniboia. Oh, no. Yeah. So you had talked a little bit about this group in our first episode, the Peguis episode. Yes. Um, just a little bit. But they're essentially an advisory group to the HBC governor. They're, like, mostly businessmen and merchants, so they're very invested in, like, preserving the status quo. And most of them had worked, or all of them had worked for the Hudson's Bay Company in some capacity before joining the council. Yes. So, um, they're definitely not going to be a force that's sort of in favor of this resistance. (laughs) No, they're going to be in favor of the land transfer to Canada. Yeah, but this does give Goulet some greater status within this burgeoning resistance movement because he's someone who can potentially act as an intermediary. Right, okay, yeah, he's got like a family connection. Exactly, between these people who have a vested interest in the status quo and people who are looking for something else, Mm -hmm. right? He's someone who can kind of go between. But I'm really curious about what, like, what they both thought about that and what their individual communications were. I don't, you know, we yeah. don't really know that. We don't have their letters to each other, as far as I know. Or what they talked about at, like, a family dinner. Yeah, right? Like, what did Christmas look like? <laughs> they were probably also going to church together and stuff, oh, too. Oh, yeah, almost certainly. That's true. Um, so in November, a notice is posted asking parishes to send representatives. So this is sort of the very beginnings of what we know as the provisional government. Okay, yeah. Um, so they begin meeting in late November. This is 12, um, like, English, um, mostly Protestant representatives, and 12 French Catholic representatives. Okay, so uh, split fairly, like, evenly down the middle. Yeah, and very intentionally split evenly in that way. They ask, like, the English parishes, okay, send this to many representatives, and the French Catholic parishes to send this many representatives. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, it's, the idea is to make this... Um, to negotiate sort of equitable transfer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Now, I haven't spoken at all yet about the existing HBC governance here, um, really, except for the Council of Cinnaboya. The current um, HBC governor at the time was William McTavish. I know the name. The Hudson Bay Company had was governed by a series of really, really bad uh, local governor, <laughs> local factors and, right. and governors. Um, and and that's because it's a system that was based on not on meritocracy, but it was a system on uh, who you knew, right? So the only qualification most of those men who came to Red River uh, from the beginning on um, was that they had a penis, so they're men, and B, they're connected enough so that daddy or uncle can get them a job, uh, right? They have no intention of staying. This is just a stepping stone for 90% of them. So they have no qualifications. Nobody in those days went to get an MBA. Nobody studies management or administration or leadership qualities or how to handle employees or anything like that. They don't know anything. They're just mm -hmm. young men who have family connections that get them the gig and they're male. It's the only qualification. So every once in a while, one of those men is actually good. And it's a fluke when that actually happened. <laughs> so the fact in 1869-70, you have McTavish there. McTavish is one of the good men, right? He's mm -hmm. smart. He's a... a compassionate man he's kind he's a good manager he's he knows what he's he's figured out maybe over a long time that how to run the Hudson Bay Company post there uh and the problem we have is that he's dying of cancer so the reason that I hadn't talked about McTavish of course is that he was basically on his deathbed mm -hmm. um but if we can believe certain accounts not only did he not oppose the creation of the provisional government, but he was adamantly in favor of it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I'll read from a primary source here where um, a number of people went to visit McTavish to basically ask what he thought about this, because he was well-respected in yep. the area. So, Governor McTavish inquired was it what it was, and Mr. Sutherland asked him if the government of Assiniboia was in existence or not. Governor McTavish said no. Then Sutherland said, Would it not be advisable to establish a provisional government? The governor said, not only is it necessary, but for God's sake, establish one. We shall have no peace in the country until one is established. Sutherland or Fraser asked Governor McTavish, and your power as governor? He said, leave me alone. I am a dead man. <laughs> <laughs> you work for the people. Nothing else was said, but bade the governor good evening, and he saluted us in return, and we left. So McTavish is basically saying, I am in no position to govern. I can't help you at all. Do not ask me. Don't ask me. I'm I'm dying. Yeah. And he does, unfortunately, in fact, die like a couple years later. Yeah. Um, but I guess it makes sense, too, that like McTavish was a little bit more well-respected as a governor. So surely he also recognized like what would happen if the people's needs weren't considered. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about like if McTavish hadn't been ill, if he had been able, if he would have been able to negotiate something. Oh, interesting. That would have been maybe more to everyone's yeah. liking. I don't know. I mean, I think, like, I think John A. McDonald's government was not really ever going to negotiate. Well, they were never going to capitulate honestly, to anyone but no. here. But maybe things would have been a little less violent. I don't know. 
I mean, you can play that game with so many different things, right? Like, well, maybe if so-and-so had, like, done this. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the whole story of, I mean, a lot of kind of uprisings, these sort of perfect storms, right? Yeah, you can see all the off-ramps people could have taken. Yes, 100%. Um, And there's just so much confusion in Red River at this point. Well, I can imagine. Like, there's this just total, like, not even just a power vacuum, but, like, a vacuum in terms of, like, organization. Like, the Council of Assiniboia has basically dissolved, which means there's no courts even in the area. Oh, no. Because they did that stuff as well, right? Um, Well, then also a lack of knowledge, like... Yes. Mail coming in came sporadically, especially from, like, the east. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was going to say, is that people in Red River are trying to communicate with Ottawa, but there are massive delays with, like, news making its way across. Um, And no one ever really seems to know what's going on. So as an excellent example of this, William McDougall is not informed that the date of the transfer transfer has been delayed. Oh, no. So he's early. Yes. So I think it's sometime in December of 1869, he sort of steps out and just sort of into the wind declares that he is now the lieutenant governor, (laughs) which he isn't because it's been pushed back. It's real reminiscent of a McDonnell coming out and going, firing his little guns and being like, I'm in charge now. It's it's the exact. Yeah, I was going to say it's exactly like that. He just sort of says it to no one. (laughs) It's somehow sadder for him that like he's got this like wall he can't get past yeah <laughs> oh buddy just give up go and home he never i mean he never really does become lieutenant right, governor yeah. like someone else is the first kind of proper lieutenant governor so he's sort of around for a while he announces his in. status yeah. to the wind yeah. and then nothing happens <laughs> nothing because happens. the delay has been pushed because the like takeover date's it's been, pushed, been back. pushed back and he's not allowed in red river yeah so um, shall we introduce Thomas Scott into our story? Please. <laughs> um, so Thomas Scott is an Irish Protestant immigrant in his 20s. Um, and he arrives to Red River in 1869. Like, okay. he's, a, he's a new arrival here. Yeah. Um, and he pretty quickly gets into trouble. He What? <laughs> yeah. He's working on a new road project, the Dawson Road Project, if, okay. if anyone is uh, really into, like, up <laughs> the history of this stuff. Probably not. Um, another but, episode for another time. Sure. Anyway, what happens, apparently, um, is that he didn't like the food that was being served to them as they worked. <laughs> so he incited his fellow workers to begin a three-day strike, after which they go to the office and demand that they be paid for this time during which they were striking. Um, so Scott is fired after he threatens to throw his boss into the Seine River if they're not paid. <laughs> yeah, that seems like that would do it. Yeah. Yeah, no, they don't, they don't usually let you keep working after you threaten to throw your boss in the river. <laughs> no. Um, I did also find a record in the Council of Assiniboia's papers of Scott being convicted and fined for an assault. I don't know if that's the same incident or a separate one. Okay. In either case, I think what we can tell is that he's this guy who's kind of hot-headed, right? Yeah. He's definitely... violently hot-headed, too. Yes. And I find Thomas Scott kind of fascinating because he's simultaneously so martyred and so hated. Yeah. Right? Like, just about every single source that comes, at least that come out of Red River, talk about, like, how he's violent and obnoxious and he's got a quick temper um, it's not very often that someone who's so unlikable becomes a martyr. Is what yeah, say. it's unusual that he became like, we'll talk about this later. I know he will. Yeah. About why he becomes the martyr yes. that he does. 
Yeah. But yeah, like all contemporary sources seem like this guy was terrible. Yeah. And I mean, I, I did wonder, like, has some of that been exaggerated over time? Because we'll see why as we get through the story, he didn't leave any descendants. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I actually went looking specifically for positive accounts. Did you find any? I found a couple. Okay. Um, so the best one I found said that Scott was a good-tempered and good-hearted man. I will say that that was a real outlier. <laughs> Interesting. What source was that in? It was in a, like, Canadian-aligned source, for okay. sure. I think it was from Reverend Young, who we'll talk about. Okay. Um, another woman who had met him in passing said he was very polite to her. Okay. But I would say that most of the first-hand accounts of Scott that lean towards the positive focus on the fact that he was very loyal. Also, okay. a lot of people thought he was very handsome. Fine. Okay. D- agree to disagree, honestly. Well, now, also, were the people that met him and had a positive experience uh, English Protestants? 100% of them, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So that may have made a large difference as well. Yeah. Um, and, like, you don't hear from a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, he was my friend. I really liked him. Just like, oh, I met him in passing and he was okay he to was me. He was fine. Um, and certainly he was causing problems pretty quickly. Like... So I don't usually do this, but I'm going to do a teaser for our Patreon. Um, We're going to talk about a hypothesis that people here may have believed he was Wendigo. Right. Yes. So if you want to hear about that, you have to go to our Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) But in any case, um, Scott is this kind of quick tempered man kind of drifting around Red River. He's unemployed now. Um. And, he and I'm assuming in... it's not easy to find a job in a small town where everyone knows you threaten to chuck your boss into the river. That's a really good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I don't even know that he's trying. He kind of just falls in with this group of Protestant agitators who are known as the Canadian Party. These people I know. The, yeah. So the Canadian Party, they're like a specific Red River thing, but they're essentially aligned with both the Orange Lodge and with the efforts of the Canadian government at this time. Mm-hmm. So they want Red River to be white, British, and Protestant. Yeah. Um, and so as we go through, I'll be talking about the Canadian Party and the Orange Lodge people, all of these people, I'll call them kind of Canadian or Canadian aligned, which I realize is confusing now that we, we are part we of are Canada. part of Canada, <laughs> but at the time... Red River was not. So you've got this kind of tinderbox in Red River, right? There is also, I want to say, a very small contingent of people that think we should give up and annex to the states. Oh, yeah. Okay. They don't really matter and they don't get much of a say in things, but there are a group of people that are like, what if we just give up? Yep. Yeah. No, there are those. There's also one guy who, like, thinks that the Métis should get the payment that the HBC is being given for the land. There's all kinds of ideas that you're just like, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. And, like, people are holding meetings all the time in, like, bars across sort of Red River to talk about these things. It turns into a bar fight at one point. Yeah. I mean, there's so many bar fights. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, well, like I was saying, it's, like, um, it's a tinderbox here, right? And, like, Louis Riel is this kind of spark entering this Mm tinderbox. And the surveyors are this spark. And the new lieutenant governor is a spark. And I feel like Thomas Scott just kind of comes rampaging in like a lit match. Oh, God. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, just just kind of coming in to cause trouble. Yeah. Um, so around this time, there are a number of skirmishes between, um, like, Riel and his supporters and the Canadian Party and their supporters. And no one's died at this point, but things are getting more and more tense. And in December of 1869, Thomas Scott is hanging around with John Christian Schultz, who I know you know. Yes. Um, he is the leader of the Canadian Party and himself kind of a weird guy. 
And not well-liked. No. He um, is, according to one source, intensely unpopular. That's a direct quote. Yep. We talked about him in, I th- think it must have been the Lord Gordon Gordon episode. Oh. We did, because he was, like, vaguely around at the same time. And when Schultz died, one person said, it was a pity we knew him. Yeah, that was the sheriff, Colin Inkster, who said that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, deeply unpopular guy, but very um, pro-Canada. Very pro-Canada. Um, he also... This is wild. He claimed to be a doctor. He went by Dr. Schultz. But one college that he claimed to have graduated from had no record of his attendance. Interesting. Two others had records of him having participated in respectively one and two semesters, but never having received a degree. So not like a doctor then, really. No, he's a man who's done three semesters at college. (laughs) And like, okay, did he take medical courses or? I guess. Probably. I don't know. Because it would be even funnier if he's like, I took three English courses. <laughs> and I'm a doctor. And now I'm a qualified surgeon. Um, And this not being a doctor did not stop him from advertising himself in the Norwester as a, quote, physician and surgeon. I mean, you could say anything back then. <laughs> this is true. Um, he had also been sent to jail in 1868. Oh, yeah, I know this. Yeah. I don't know the story super well anymore. But So, Elzira Goulet's brother sent him to jail. Oh, his really? Bro- yeah, his brother, right, Leger, yeah. his brother Leger, who was a magistrate. Um, sent him to jail for financial crimes. He was yeah. like, I don't know what he was doing. Some kind of weird fraud. Anyway, um, but Schultz's wife gets, like, together a group of, like, Canadian party guys to break him out. The jail was not well guarded, I should no. say. It was, like, a ramshackle building with an old guy outside. This episode has more people, more prisoners escaping than any episode we've ever done before or will ever do, I think. It's it's a big time for jailbreaks. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I didn't know that Goulet's brother had Yeah, so I do him. wonder if that may have led to some animosity there, right? Yeah. On a kind of personal level. Um, but the other thing is that, like, this is when the Council of Assiniboia kind of fizzles out and stops existing. So they don't really try that hard to, like, re-arrest him. Yeah. He just kind of hangs out in Red River <laughs> and, like, periodically kind of hides, but not really. What a, what a weak show of power also oh, for a yeah. government, right? To be like, well, he's out. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's exactly that. And it's really funny because, like, throughout the um, up throughout the resistance, there's always, like, rumors of, like, Schultz is staying at so-and-so's house. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, no one's, like, really looking for him. No, no one's really looking for him. Um, and on December 7th or 8th, the Canadian party has a dispute uh, with Riel's people at Schultz's general store. Because sometimes you're a doctor and you also have a general store. You know what? You can have all kinds of businesses in Red River when no one can ever check your credentials. Sure. Um, So this um, dispute results in Schultz, Scott, and about 50 others being captured and held at Fort Garry. Oh, that's what prompts it is the dispute at the store? Yes. So, yeah, this kind of weird argument that they have there. Interesting. What was the argument about? I don't know. (laughs) It's probably somewhere in my notes. Yeah. But nothing super out of the ordinary or important, I don't think. Um. So Thomas Scott, um, he's taken prisoner, and he escapes a day or two later. Okay. Um, And the other prisoners are all eventually released. Um, For most people, the process of being released was that they would be taken to a room where, um, usually Goulet, I think, but sometimes, like, a different kind of officer of part of this Métis militia would be there, and they would present the prisoner with an oath of neutrality. Okay. So this is sometimes presented in Canadian Alliance sources as an oath of loyalty, but I'm pretty sure what it actually was was just something saying you won't come and attack. 
us here yeah. at the fort. Okay. Which makes sense. Yeah. Right. If you're going to release someone, it kind of makes sense to do that. Um, Especially when you're trying to establish some authority as a provisional government. For sure. The, the provisional government doesn't totally exist yet. You've got these kind of representatives from various parishes, but not a full provisional government yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but this series of arrests definitely um, contributes to ill will towards Riel and his followers. These stints staying at Fort Garry were not nice. No, it sounds terrible. No, it's like, it's December. It's really cold. It's not a nice place it's to stay. It's a stone fort. It's, it's a not, stone fort. It's yeah. not heated. No. So definitely a lot of people, even like decades later, will bear grudges about the fact that like they were kept at the fort and caught pneumonia or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So in January of 1870, the Convention of 40 uh, assembles. So this is um, kind of grows out of that previous, um, those previous representatives who had been sent. And they begin going over a Bill of Rights, which they hope will structure the transfer of Manitoba to Canada. Okay. Um, So they go through like several drafts, but ultimately what they demand is the following. So democratic rights, um, public land to be lauded for schools, roads, and so on, a railway connection, um, all government business to be done in both French and English, uh, treaties to be signed with the First Nations, and, quote, that all privileges, customs, and usages existing at the time of the transfer be respected. Which so, seems extremely reasonable. Yeah, and I take that last one to mean that, like, land usages in particular mm-hmm. will be respected. We talked about this in the uh, Pegwis episode, too, where we talked to Alan Sutherland, who was mm-hmm. talking about how, like, Métis people aren't always staying on their land year-round, right? So it doesn't look like it's actively being used, yes, even though so it that's, is. that's a very important thing to say, like, the way that things are being used now, we expect to continue after yeah. this transfer. Um, and so things actually seem to be cooling off. Um, in, like, early 1870. Like, peace certainly isn't imminent, but it does seem possible. Okay. Um, until what happens to Norbert Parisien. hmm So... We're going to do a little bit of historiography talk here. Okay. I'm going to try not to do too much of it, but there are two major problems that can happen, right, when we're researching. One of them is too few sources. That happens to us all the time. Yes. Um, but too many sources can also pose a problem. Oh, yeah. You were telling me about this the other day, I think. Yeah, because you end up having to sort through kind of an excess of information, trying to figure out what's reliable, what's not, what's the truth. Um, and on on this, we sort of have a little bit of both. <laughs> And okay. generally on the Red River Resistance, I feel that way because there are more primary sources than I could ever possibly read mm-hmm. unless I took this on as like a thesis project. But the vast majority of these come from the English-Canadian aligned side. Mm-hmm. There's no like uninvolved parties here. There's not like a... Well, yeah, neutrality is not going to exist in Red River no. at this time no. or even like in the years that come after. For sure. There's not like a neutral newspaper that's like objectively reporting the facts, right? And so the story of Parisienne is a great example of that because I spent so much time with the sources on this and I have to say I'm still not confident that I know what happened to him. Okay. Yeah. So I'll try to go through kind of some versions <laughs> of All what right. happened, but I think we get, we'll get the important points of the story. All right. Um, so the Canadian crowd who are at this point hanging out at Portage La Prairie um, that's where they're kind of stationed, and possibly Thomas Scott, um, as part of this group, capture a man named Norbert Parisien, under the belief that Parisien is a spy for Riel. He may have been a young adult, Parisien, or he may have been a man in his 50s. 
Those are very different ages. Yes. Um, there were two men by that name in Red River at the time. So we, we don't know which one of you was. We also don't know which side Perez Yan was on. Or if indeed he was on either. Um, or what exactly made them suspicious of him either, beyond the fact that he was French. Yeah. Um, we do know for sure that he was taken prisoner. Um, most likely in a schoolhouse. One, one source says a church, but every other one says schoolhouse. So we'll go with that. And we know for sure that he escaped stealing a rifle in the process. Um, this is where things get a lot messier. So as he ran, he happened upon a young man named Hugh John Sutherland. And some accounts suggest that he wanted to steal Sutherland's horse to help him escape. Others just say that he seemed very afraid and probably mistook Sutherland for one of his captors who was coming to, like, bring him back. Mm -hmm. Um, in either case, he shoots Sutherland twice, uh, delivering wounds from which Sutherland will eventually die. Um, interesting side note here, by the way, Sutherland is actually operated on by John Schultz in an effort to save his life. Oh. And as we established earlier, John Schultz is not a doctor. Strange. He's, so that may have contributed to the fact. It didn't help, It didn't, no, it certainly did not help. So Sutherland, yeah, does unfortunately die. Um... If Parisian was after the horse, he never had a chance um, because he is recaptured almost immediately. And here accounts differ again. Some say that he was delivered a, quote, slight tap on the head with the back of a tomahawk. Whereas um, Andrénaud, who's um, one of Riel's men, claimed that Parisian had told him on his deathbed that Thomas Scott specifically had beaten him quite brutally with a club. Okay. So those are, I mean... I don't know how you hit someone lightly and with, stop them with a tomahawk. No, that's not like a, not like it's any like gentle weapons, but a tomahawk seems like it's gonna. It seems like there's probably a middle ground where like he was hit harder than a light tap. He was, he was for sure hit hard enough that they stopped him from continuing to run away. Yeah, is what we know logically, right? Most accounts agree then that he had a sash tied around his neck and the other to the tail of a horse. And that the horse was then ridden across the ice while he was dragged behind. Oh, jeez. Um, and again, he, Andreno says on his deathbed that Parisian told him Thomas Scott was the man who did this. Okay. But we don't know that for sure. Um, so some sources also don't say any of this. Some sources just say that there was a struggle and that Parisian came back from his escape attempt with injuries from which he died a few days later. Seems like a lot to leave out. Yes. <laughs> Are it's the Canadian aligned sources that leave out what happened generally? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so obviously this is a really unfortunate situation. Neither Sutherland nor Parisian were like particularly involved in anything. No, they don't seem like they were major players in no, either side of things. They're really just sort of bystanders standards who get caught up in this. And one of the important differences that I read in the sources here is that the Canadian aligned sources tend to see this as sort of like an unfortunate um, enactment of, like, mob violence or, like, um, a struggle with a prisoner that couldn't have been prevented. Whereas um, the Métis sources seem to see this as Thomas Scott specifically going into this sort of violent rage. Which it seems like he was kind of expected to do already. Yes. And so I think that establishes that as a pattern for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that gives us some clue as to what comes next and why. So not long after this event in February, there's this whole plot put together partly by Captain Charles Bolton, 
who had also been involved in the whole Parisienne thing, his pl he plots this thing to overthrow Louis Riel. It fails and results in a bunch of more arrests by the Métis at Fort Garry. And Bolton then puts together another group to try and free the prisoners from that attempt. Which is very easy to do. So, first group, yeah, I mean, true. I think the jailbreak is easier than the coup. Yeah, but, like, both of these plots are confusing and poorly planned, so I'm just gonna they let- They don't, like, work? They don't work. It's not even really clear what they were trying to do, so I'm gonna let listeners, if they want to look up more about those plots, they can do that. Interesting. <laughs> even within the group, they don't seem to be clear on what they're doing or who's in charge. Like, Bolton is kind of having arguments with, like, the more, like, he's kind of more reticent, and then Thomas Scott and Charles Mayer- Charles Mayer, who was famously horsewhipped yes. by Annie Bannatyne. Um, they're, like, more aggressive. Um, in any case, they, for whatever reason, end up taking a route that takes them right by Fort Garry, where they've been explicitly told not to come, right? Like, just yeah. a couple days before, a bunch of people have been captured, and they're like, okay, stop. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're spotted, of course, by the Métis in Fort Garry, and a group of men on horseback under the command of Alzira Goulet and Ambroise Lapine ride out to meet them. Um, and there's kind of a frenzy within the Canadian-aligned group as, like, it's this really odd um like visual in accounts of this as like the group just kind of sits there as they watch the Métis on horseback approach them oh because they don't really know what to do yeah i guess they don't really have like a plan right they don't really have a plan they haven't really decided who's in charge of their group so they end up just waiting wow yeah <laughs> so, okay so um the Métis come up and they don't they're so they're, i mean it's kind of good because there's no shots fired they just sort of come up and they attempt to take their arms. Um, Goulet comes up to this one guy, McLeod, to take his rifle. And this is from a primary source. McLeod said that no half-breed was going to take his rifle and struck Goulet between the eyes, knocking him down. Um, McLeod then points his rifle at O'Donoghue, who's another member of the provisional government, but he's stopped. And so they kind of like calm down after that little kerfuffle. And the whole group is arrested again, including Thomas yeah. Scott. It's interesting they seem to not want violence to happen. Yeah, over and over. They're like, okay, like, you're going to have to be held prisoner. But yeah, yeah no, they're, they're definitely showing some, um, I can't think of the word, but like, they're not firing on them immediately, yeah. right? Um, and like both sides, it seems like. I think yes. probably the Canadian party, maybe, because they don't know so much what their end game is here. But Yeah, totally. No, I mean, there's a lot of confusion. I think like... This is less of a story about, like, a war between two parties and more a story of, like, a bunch of people who don't 100% have clear goals, who know what they don't want, have some ideas of what they do want, yeah. but no one really wants there to be a ton of bloodshed. Yeah. Whereas it seems like the provisional government at least has a pretty clear idea of, like, what their demands are should yeah. things happen. Yeah. But just, like, outside of that, it's real muddy. Yes. And even within the provisional government, there is a ton of difference about what precisely they want like it takes them a while to get this bill of rights yeah. right but they are able to make that list of like okay here are the really important things mm -hmm. um so thomas scott is arrested as i said for the second time and he immediately begins causing problems yeah i've heard many stories about him being one of the worst prisoners yeah so he is violent towards guards and his fellow prisoners yeah isn't it that like his other prisoners were like can you like put him somewhere else yes yeah they're asking some of them for him to be moved um he's like he's loud he's constantly trying to escape 
Oh, no. Though, I mean, so was everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah, so at some point, the guards get kind of so annoyed with him, so enraged that they want to lynch him, but Louis Riel actually steps in, and he's, he instead orders a court-martial. So this is why that happens. So a council is gathered. Um, so the council is six men. It's Antrenaud, Joseph Delon, um, Jean-Pierre Richot, Elzier Lachemodière, Elzier Goulet, and Baptiste Lépien. So um, it's actually a little unclear, like, what specifically they were charging um, Scott with. Mm-hmm. So um, Reverend Young, who he came up very briefly before. Yeah. Um, but he's a sort of Methodist minister in this area. And he um, he writes an account of this time, okay. which is which is why we have a lot of what he what he talks about. So he claims that when he asked Riel what Scott's crime was, Riel told him, quote, he is a very bad man and has insulted my guards and has hindered some from making peace. So I must make an example to impress others and lead them to respect my government and will take him first. And then, if necessary, others will follow. And I'll be honest that I just fully don't believe this. Really? Yeah. I don't. Um, I've read, for one thing, I've read Louis Riel's writings. He was eloquent and intelligent. He wrote, like, poetic satires of things that happened. Okay, so this seems, like, a little too simple. Yeah, unless it was, like, an issue of a language barrier, I really don't see just, like, he's a very bad man being what came out yeah. of Riel's mouth. Um, but the other thing I will say is that I'm skeptical of this account because I think there are a lot of other things that Young lies about. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He's kind of an odd guy. His account of things completely leaves out what happens to Paris Yen, for example. Oh, interesting. I'll also tell you a little bit later about a kind of crazy thing he did. He also claims that um, that Thomas Scott was, like, very devout, when by all accounts Scott was more or less an atheist. So, okay, yeah. So Young has his own agenda going for sure. this. And it's, it's, it's really hard because... Um, you know, it's also, like, a first-hand account of things that have happened. There, There is some value in this account, but also I just think he's a big, fat liar. <laughs> um, so I think the most plausible sort of charges, quote, um, are the following. Um, so first of all, that Scott had previously, I think, taken one of these oaths of neutrality and then broken it. Okay. Um, I think that he had struck one of the guards, at least, possibly more. And that he had threatened to kill Riel and possibly also previously been part of a group who attempted to kill Riel. Okay. They're in this group who had kind of gone searching for Riel but hadn't found him. Okay. Um, but me talking about, like, charges is also me placing the format of, like, a modern Canadian trial. Right, yeah. On, on this, which is, like, not really good historical practice. I'm doing it here just to kind of... So it's easier to... to yeah. yeah. But um, when we spoke to Jean... Um, I had sort of said in passing, like, well, there was a trial of sorts. And I'll play for you what she said to me, because I feel like she sort of took me to task for that phrasing in, like, the best possible yeah. way. No, I thought it was a trial. Yeah. It's, okay, it's yeah. not a trial of sorts. It's a trial. And 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 I really, I really dislike the way people like Tom Flanagan just, you know, dismiss it as, you know, well, it's sure. like <laughs> Métis justice is like on the buffalo hunt. Well, what's wrong with the buffalo hunt? That was a traveling mm-hmm. village out there. They were administering justice. It was deliberative. They had laws. They followed due process. It's exactly the same as what we do here. Now, they might have different laws and mm-hmm. different ways of doing it. But, you know, our laws are different in Quebec than they are in, in Manitoba. So 
you know, I mean, and if you go to France, they have a very different system of of criminal justice. So, you know, I, I think it was a perfectly legitimate uh, legal system set up and it was a, a trial. Now, whether people say, well, it wasn't fair because it wasn't the same as the British legal system. Well, the British legal system is not the only legal system in the world. Yeah. You know, just like there's lots of other ways. And and the Métis in Manitoba would have been heavily influenced by the French system. And the mm -hmm. French system is very different. Um, so I my own my own thought is 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 that I think it's a justifiable, um, valid uh trial held and that they came to a conclusion by and you know, majority rules is what they did, same as our courts work. You know, yeah. I've been to the Supreme Court of Canada 12 times arguing things, you know, and there's nine justices up there. And if you got five on your side, you win. <laughs> if you got four on your side, you lose, right? You know, so that was what happened there was the majority voted to execute. So this trial has been dismissed by a lot of people because it wasn't conducted according to English law. Yeah. But as Jean points out, there are many different forms of law in the world. And they had a pretty well-established form of law in it, Red River, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. based in the buffalo hunt, which yeah. is something that Goulet almost certainly had experience yeah. in. Um, but the trial is controversial. It remains so today. Um, and becomes even more so because as far as I know, we don't have like the notes of the actual trial itself. Though I do know they existed at some point, which always makes me so mad. Yeah, and then like, oh, you wonder where they wound up, hey? Yeah, hey. So all we have is a sort of, like, telephone tag of history. Which is always the way to get the most accurate telling yeah. of any story. <laughs> yes. Um, but I think one point of context that's really important is that the ability to hold prisoners for a long time has really changed the conversation around, like, capital punishment mm -hmm. and, like, appropriate kinds of punishment for people. So, for one thing, the provisional government didn't have the ability to hold Thomas Scott for any length of time. No, as we have established. He's, a, he's escaped once before. It seems like so many people have. Oh, yeah. Also, like, if Scott gets out, what's he going to do? Well, this is the thing. And so, like, okay, so first of all, yeah, Fort Gary wasn't built to be a pr prison, and it wasn't suitable as one either. Mm -hmm. um, which is evidenced by the fact, yeah, that first of all, people keep escaping. At one point, one former prisoner recalls that he basically walked out. They, like, take him to the room where he's supposed to sign the oath of neutrality. He says no. They're like, okay, go to this other room. He gets in there, and they're, like, distracted and drinking. So he just leaves. He goes out, gets some, like, wine and whiskey, and comes back to bring it to his fellow prisoners. All right. Like, this does not sound like the most... Secure? Secure place. Um, and also evidenced by the poor conditions that prisoners right, were kept yeah. in. Right? It, w it wouldn't have been ethical to keep someone there for any length of time. No. Um, yeah, so like you said, like, what are they going to do if he, if he does get out? Um... He's unlikely to abide by any kind of banishment, and he only seems to be getting angrier and more violent with, with each intervention. Um, and in fact, when one of the members of the court-martial decides that, or suggests that it would be better to exile Scott and offers to take him to the border, Scott reportedly says, Take me there if you will. I will be back as soon as you. Which- Not what you want to hear. No. Like, he's basically saying, I'm not even going to pretend to stay there. I'm going to just immediately come back with you. Yeah. Because I'm not done doing whatever I'm doing here. Whatever, like, plan he had. Yeah. Um, so I think the lack of other options plays a factor in the final decision of the court-martial. 
I think the death of Parisienne played a factor. Of course. Because he had demonstrated this kind of, like, shocking violence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the threats against Riel were plausible enough that they played a factor. And I do think that efforts to be taken seriously may have played a factor. Yeah, of course. Yeah, efforts to say, like, you know, like, the provisional government to some extent is just trying to trying to kind of do the business of a government. Yeah. But day to day, they're having to deal with these attempts to overthrow them. Well, they're trying to establish legitimacy in some ways, right? Yeah. So I do think, for better or worse, that that probably played a role. So Thomas Scott is found guilty. Um, he's found guilty by all six of the members, and four of them, including Goulet, recommend a death sentence. Do you know which two don't? Oh, not off the top of my head. Okay. Um, I think one one of them at least recommends exile. He may be the one who Scott told him, like, You can try it. You can try. I'm going to come right back. Um. It sounds though like most people didn't actually think the execution would be carried out, including Scott himself. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so a separate court-martial earlier had sentenced Captain Bolton to death. Oh. So he's the guy who had been involved with, like, this plan to overthrow, mm-hmm. right? So they had done a court-martial, sentenced Captain Bolton to death, and they had then pardoned him, actually at the request of uh, Hugh John Sutherland's parents. They had said basically, like, look, we don't want more bloodshed over what's happened to our son. And so they say, you know, okay. Um, And so I think most of the Canadian-aligned group, and probably a lot of the Métis, thought that this was essentially an empty threat. Yeah. That they were just doing this again, right? It was a show of force to Mm -hmm. be like, look, we could, but we won't. Except they did. Yeah. Um, So Scott is taken to a separate room where he was given a pen and paper and a bed, and they called Reverend Young for him. Um, Young is, is kind of shocked. Um, he apparently spends the morning of Scott's execution basically running around Fort Gary trying to beg for mercy. Um, he asks Goulet and O'Donoghue, who both refuse to intervene. He asks Riel, um, who says he won't go against the decision of the court-martial, but does agree to postpone the execution by a few hours. Okay. To sort of give him time to try get used to the idea oh, i maybe. don't know um so scott is allowed to say goodbye to the other prisoners he says goodbye boys to them okay. i don't know for whatever reason that's one of the things that we have the most sourcing on in all of this that he says goodbye boys yeah huh um and he's allowed to uh pray with reverend young and apparently the people who will execute scott also pray um, he's then escorted by Goulet and Lapin, um, along with some other men to the place of the execution and it is carried out. So Scott is shot by a firing squad, after which he is put into a plain wooden box. Um, at first Goulet tells Reverend Young that he should get a sleigh, which I, I take that to mean that he should get a sleigh in order to transport, um, the Scott's body. body. Yeah. But Lapin then intercedes and says that Young can't have it. Oh, interesting. So this becomes a, a huge point of right, yes. contention. And, like, the wisdom of that is, I, I don't know, debatable. Because mm-hmm. would he have become an even greater martyr if they had it? I don't know. But after that, we, we don't actually know what happens to Scott's body. Yeah, it's a bit of a mystery to this day. It is. So one person claimed that Goulet had told him that they had taken the body in a sleigh and thrown it through a hole in the river with heavy chains tied to it. I've seen sort of elaborations of that. Okay. Um, suggesting that they he had also dressed him in Métis clothing in an effort to disguise him if he was found. 
Um, but I've also seen claims that the box was simply buried within the walls of Fort Gary. Yeah. And I've seen claims that an empty box was buried. So it's, there are a lot of different claims. Yeah. Do you, do you have a theory that you think is most plausible or who's to say? I, yeah, I have no idea. I think probably they just buried him within the fort. Yeah? Yeah. I don't, I don't know why they would bother with, with putting him into the river that yeah. way. Right? Especially since, you know, people were sort of around. It seems like they might have been caught doing that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Yeah. Because I've heard the empty casket story. And if yeah. that if that part of the story is true, then the river thing makes sense. That's but, true. like, we don't really know if they found the casket. So. Yes. Yeah. It's one of those things we'll just never yeah. really know. Yeah. No. Um, so, in terms of the aftermath, it's interesting how both sides talk about this event. Um, the announcement of Scott's death in the provisional government's newspaper, which is called The New Nation, is really mournful in tone. So it says, The whole affair is a matter of profound regret. The president and court-martial regretted extremely that they should feel uh, themselves driven to this course, and all join with us in regretting the dire necessity of this case, and in hoping that Red River may never witness such another sad scene. Um, it talks about how grieved the judges were to pass this sentence, and they really portray it as this sort of horribly unhappy necessity um but those who are canadian aligned speak about this as not only a murder but using words like cold-blooded inhuman unprovoked oh wow that's a huge tone shift yes um i told you i'd tell you something a little bit crazy that reverend young did yeah he was said to carry around vials that he said were of thomas scott's blood which he would like show to people on the train why i don't like to to drum up well to drum up anger i guess yeah god that's crazy i would say those were almost certainly not actually his blood since he didn't have his body yeah but yeah it's very strange um so immediately after the execution though it actually seems like things are kind of just trucking along yeah Um, The provisional government begins assembling kind of properly in March, like having like regular meetings, and they're debating over things like laws around like fires and liquor licenses and animal licenses. So normal government stuff. Normal government stuff. The prisoners at Fort Garry are all freed. Um, Louis Riel says that once they've negotiated this transfer, he's going to step down as president. So things seem kind of okay. The reason, though, that things seem reasonably calm is that news travels slowly in 1870. Mm. So in early April, John Schultz and Charles Mayer arrive in Ontario. They've made the trek out there to spread the news of Thomas Scott's death. Oh, right. Okay. I remember this part of the story. (laughs) Yeah. So there's all kinds of these, like, crazy meetings held in Ontario. Um, Like Orange Lodge meetings. Well, Schultz and Mayer do, like, a speaking tour, essentially. They do this whole speaking tour basically talking about, they call them, in some places, like, indignation meetings to talk about, like, the death of this kind of martyr, Thomas Scott. Um, Who, until this point, no one in Ontario is, like, really heard of. No, no one's heard of him. No one even really liked him. Um, You know, which is not to say that he should have been killed, but, like, it's, it's just... Yeah, it's odd that these people go and... Schultz and Mayer are using his death for their own purposes. Um, And so what ends up happening is that the provisional government had sent these three delegates into Ontario to um, negotiate with the cabinet with this Bill of Rights. 
when they arrive, they're arrested. Oh, no. Because they are being held as complicit in this death, even though, like, you know, they had, they had nothing to do with this. Um, eventually, though, the charges are dropped. I guess it's just kind of this furor that happens mm-hmm. right away. Um, so they are able to meet with John A. McDonald and begin negotiations. But that had to have been a very strange start to that. Yeah. You're like, hey, we're here to negotiate a thing. They're and like, they're like, no. No, you're in jail, actually. Um, so they meet with John A. McDonald. They begin these negotiations. They also meet with the governor general, who assures them that there will be a general amnesty for everyone involved in the resistance once this transfer is negotiated. <laughs> You don't look like you believe that, Sabrina. I don't. Oh, interesting. Um, so in May, in any case, the Manitoba Act passes. Um, so this provides the basis for bringing Manitoba into Canada and contains what much of what the Bill of Rights asked for, um, including voting rights, language rights, and land for the Métis. So everything's great after that. Yeah, famously, nothing goes wrong. No. Um... So, no, unfortunately, um, what happens is that an expeditionary force is formed. Um, So this is essentially a militia um, sent in by Ottawa to take control of Red River. Um, They're called the Red River Expeditionary Force, but I think usually people call it the Wolseley Expedition. Mm -hmm. It's it's led by this guy Wolseley. In theory, if everyone were kind of like honest actors in this, all they're supposed to do is make sure this transition goes smoothly and provide kind of rule of law as this new lieutenant governor arrives. Because they've sort of given yeah. up on McDougal here. They're sending in a different guy. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. But of course, not everyone is an honest actor no, in this. No, John A. McDonald has not been honest with the delegates during these negotiations. Um, and what ends up happening as well is that people who have heard about the death of Thomas Scott join up with this group with this expeditionary are these other orange men who are joining up specifically yes orange lodge guys specifically are joining with this wolfly expedition to basically go and like crack some heads yeah right to kind of get revenge and you would think if you were like no we want like a peaceful transition of power you'd be like no random man you can't join this (laughs) you can't come on like a revenge quest with us yeah um and in fact they end up Orange Lodge members probably end up t- making up a majority of the group. Okay. I think it's about 1,800 men in the end. Oh, wow. So it's quite a lot, actually. That's a lot. Of, that's a good number of people to bring into Red River. It's, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Red River is not that hugely populated at this point. Um, And so in the meantime, though, they're kind of like assembled but waiting at a distance until they hear as to whether the Manitoba Act has been accepted. So... In Ottawa, they're like, yes, we're okay with this. They're waiting for the provisional government to say, yes, we're also okay with this. So in June, the provisional government agrees to its terms. And in mid-July, the province of Manitoba is declared. um, With the provisional government becoming its first provincial government, mostly because there is no other government there. Yeah, that makes sense. So this is why you sometimes hear people say that Louis Riel was like our first premier. Yeah. Because he was president of the provisional government when we became a province. Um, but in August of 1870, the Wolseley expedition makes their way into Red River, and they actually arrive before the new lieutenant governor, which is significant. So they're unsupervised. Yes, exactly. They're unsupervised, and there's no one really there to, like, set a mandate or an expectation for them, except Wolseley, who's, like, just, like, awful. Not a good guy. Um... 
And so a lot of members of the provisional government actually pretty quickly realize what's coming and they leave the area. Um, Goulet, though, chooses to stay. Interesting. So, though, in St. Boniface. Okay, so not like... So not at Fort Gary, which everyone's kind of fled now. Yeah. But across the river, where it's a little bit safer. And presumably that's where his family lives and everything, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, he's got a family farm over there. Yeah. Um, so Lieutenant Governor Archibald arrives on September 2nd, 1870, to very little fanfare. Apparently, like, I guess it was much more impressive when, like, the, this huge expedition of 1,800 men comes in, yeah. right? It's just, like... A guy. A guy with a couple of people with him. So people are and like, oh, hi. He finds the fort abandoned, essentially, right? Like, Riel's already gone by this point. Yeah, yeah, Riel's gone, um, and the, yeah, the Wolseley expedition is there, but there's no provisional government anymore, effectively. Um... And Canadian-aligned people immediately get on Archibald, telling him that he needs to arrest Riel, Lapine, and this guy O'Donoghue as well, and form a new government of, quote, Canadians. Mm. He doesn't came into that, to his credit, uh, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> this okay. is like, I don't know, I'm being generous hey. to Archibald here. I, but mostly because I feel that Archibald's power seemed fairly limited. I don't think that John A. Macdonald was being honest with him either. Oh, interesting. Um, in particular, Schultz begins to openly defy Archibald after Archibald fails to appoint him as an advisor. So there's this whole thing where Archibald is like, oh, I don't really know what's going on here. I like need someone to advise me. And Schultz is kind of like, oh, is it going to be me? Oh, God. And he's like... A real, like, Iago yeah, situation. Yes. And he's like, no. And so Schultz afterwards <laughs> just like has it in for him. Um, yeah, that, that's a guy that holds a grudge. Yeah, and Archibald doesn't really seem to have that much support from the government in Ottawa. It seems like the, like, Wolseley and his men really have a lot more support than Archibald does as lieutenant governor, which is, is really quite strange. Well, I've seen McDonald was more keen on sending in the Orangemen who might yes. get rid of the agitators as opposed to someone who would keep the peace, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and so... As I mentioned, Goulet is still there, but just across the river in St. Boniface. And on September 12th of 1870, he is speaking to this guy, Cunningham, who's a, he's a newspaper correspondent. And he's basically asking Cunningham if he thinks, if he's heard, if there will be an amnesty. Mm -hmm. Because this amnesty has been promised, right? Yes. So he's like, is that going to happen? Can I go and, like, not be arrested? And Cunningham tells him, go to your home. Work on your farm and nobody will trouble you. I think you are better without an amnesty than with one. I think the point he's making is that, like, oh, that would only, like, draw attention to everything that's happened. Oh, like, just like... kind of let it fizzle out and everything will be fine. And Goulet says, but I want to go over to the other side of the river. I have business to do. And he expresses a fear to Cunningham that if he goes to the other side of the river, that the volunteers would insult him and beat him up. Which is um, not an unfounded fear. No, but Cunningham says to him, By no means, any French half-breed ought not to harbor any such ideas. So he reassures him that he's not going to be hurt. Oh, Cunningham, you idiot. Uh, it's, yeah. So Goulet says, I will go over. And he tells his friends before going that Cunningham had said there was no reason that he should be afraid of going into Winnipeg. Um, and Cunningham, I, I don't think, knew what he was doing. Some people later accuse him of intentionally sending Goulet into... Do you think he was just, like, 
well-meaning but misinformed so. or yes, maybe think... a bit more generous with the Wolseley expedition than a Métis person might have been. Yeah, and I think, like, in the same way, like, a white person can be like, what do you mean? There's no racism, right? It's kind yeah, of... Yeah, like, why would they attack you? Things are fine. Yes, probably he's been treated reasonably well, and so he's like, no, everything seems fine. Yeah. In any case, on September 13th, the next day, Goulet does cross the river, and he goes to a local saloon around mid-afternoon. Um, he's hoping it won't be very busy at this time of day. It's also a place which is owned by people who were aligned with the provisional government, so it should theoretically be a safe place for him. Unfortunately, it, though, is right near Fort Garry, where the Wolves oh. of the Expedition have now set themselves up. Um, so he's standing at the door of the saloon talking to the bartender, uh, this guy named Monchamp, when John Farkasen happens along. And... Farkasen is the father-in-law of John Schultz of the Canadian Party. Mm -hmm. And he's actually kind of a confusing figure. I find him strange. Yeah. Well, we were, we were talking about him, like, literally, like, three hours ago. Yeah. He, so he was an actor, like, a Shakespearean actor and an artist in his youth. He actually painted the interior of the, like, old, old St. Boniface Cathedral. So, yeah. so nothing about that sort of screams, like, anti-Catholic to me. But... He, yeah, he, like I said, he's um, John Schultz's father-in-law, so I guess he sort of falls in with them, right? Yeah. And so, he, he's also around, like, 50 years old, right? He's not one of these kind of, like, young, hot-headed guys. No, it's, he's, he's very interesting. Yeah, so. As a figure. Nevertheless, he had at some point firmly aligned himself with the Canadian party. He had even apparently tried to print up flyers offering 20 pounds for the capture of Riel and Lupin. So he is firmly in the Canadian yes. party. And in that case, Lieutenant Governor Archibald had been like, you can't do that, actually. <laughs> so I'm assuming that also he's about the same level of like anti-Catholic, anti-MIT as Schultz is. Yes. And which so... is to say, like, violently so. Yes. Yeah. And that will become very apparent very shortly because on this day in September, he asks the barkeeper at the door... Is that the man who, who shot Scott? To which the barkeeper says no. Farkson then asks, is that Goulet? And he says yes. Goulet then attempts to just go into the bar, but Farkson follows him and calls out, catch hold of him and kill him to the orange men who are in the bar. Oh no. So Goulet runs out a side door. And Farkasen galley, sorry, Farkasen rallies a number of soldiers, including three named Saunders, Madigan, and Campbell, and they chase Goulet. Several of the men are actually seen chasing Goulet by Hugh John MacDonald, oddly. Um, oh, right, yeah, he's in town this yeah, time. Yeah, and he basically told them to, like, cut it out. So a few of them are actually called back, but at least those three who I named continue after him. Um, he manages to lose them for a little while, but they catch up again. Um, and ultimately, Goulet runs down what is now Lombard, and he actually jumps into the Red River in the hopes of swimming across to St. Boniface, where he'll be safe. Um, and I think people in Winnipeg will understand how afraid you would have to be to jump into the river, to jump into the Red River to make swimming across it the safer option. Um, and they begin throwing rocks at him as he swims, and it seems one of them hits him in the head, knocking him unconscious, and he drowns. Um, some accounts say that, in fact, Goulet may have had a heart problem, and so he wasn't hit by a, a rock, but rather had a heart attack, and that's why he drowned. Um, the medical examin examination, I don't think, is conclusive on that. Yeah. 
but I'm not a lawyer, but like heart problem or not, you can't chase a man into the river and throw rocks at him. The impact is the same, right? Like, like yeah. if they caught him, they were going to kill him, right? Like, yeah, well, exactly. And certainly, either way, that's a, that's criminal. Mm-hmm. You know, even if he had successfully swum across and had not died, you can't throw rocks at someone. That's mm-hmm. that's against the law. So, this happens within eleven days of Archibald arriving. Oh wow, that's so, a really short time span. Yeah. How long had the Wolseley expedition been in town by this point? maybe a month maybe a little less so um really they're kind of kicking off with violence Mm -hmm. and so i feel like that is an opportunity for archibald to kind of set the stage right and be like this is how things are going to be while i'm here and so he does call for an inquest um so he appoints this montreal lawyer named mcconville to oversee it but the whole process seems like kind of a disaster Okay. Um, I do have to say I tried so hard to find the sources on this and I was so happy <laughs> I finally found yeah, you did. the sources on this inquest and it took me forever. Yes, I heard all about this long saga. So the, the National Archives took my money and then didn't give me anything. Oh well. Oh well. But you got it. But I got it. Um, so anyway, um, McConville um, and Archibald, they appoint two magistrates. So one is Scottish and the other is French. So there's kind of some effort here to keep things sort of equitable equitable i guess with a big question mark at the end yes um so from the few descriptions i do have of this inquest apparently the magistrates were not very experienced they probably hadn't done this kind of inquest before mcconville describes them as quote little fitted for the work though the best we had in the province so low bar yeah And the Canadian-aligned group seems to be convinced that the court is trying to prove that Goulet met with foul play, so that they are not neutral, and so they set out to sabotage it at every opportunity. Um, And I suspect that this has something to do with the administrative problems that they end up having. Oh, interesting. So, for one thing, they have difficulty finding interpreters, um, because only one, so one judge only speaks French, and the other mostly spoke English. So they needed everything interpreted, but they can't find someone. So McConville has to do a lot of it himself. Oh, no. Yeah. They also have difficulty getting a clerk to take notes. Um, One does it for half a day and then doesn't come back after lunch. Um, Another refuses to continue after two days. Why do you think people are stopping? So I, I don't know, but I suspect they were being threatened. They would have to be, right? That's like, that's what I suspect. Because I think, like, okay, maybe you have one clerk who's like, actually, this is a lot of writing and I just don't want to do it. But to have two in a row who quit in that way? It's I don't suspicious. Know. It's suspicious to me and I that's what I suspect, but I don't I don't really have evidence of that. Um, so McConville also has to take notes. So oh. he's doing the interpreting. He's doing the note taking. Um, and they end up having issues with the witnesses. Um, some of whom seem to be deliberately uncooperative. I'm assuming the witnesses are then members of the Wolseley expedition that are being uncooperative? Or? Some, yeah, some yeah. of them for sure. Um, McConville is worried about disagreements, so he kind of lets witnesses, like, ramble off topic also before, like, trying to, like, direct them back. Um, one young man in particular claims that there were eight or ten men who chased Goulet, and when asked for their names, he leaves the court for 20 minutes without permission. And when he comes back, he denies that the court has any right to operate or to ask him questions, and he presents some kind of pamphlet. 
I, okay. I don't know what this pamphlet is or who wrote it. Is this like a, I can do what I want note? He slides to the court. I, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know, Sabrina. That's so strange. It's so strange. Okay. But the like, cra- he left for 20, did he go like see a lawyer in his yeah, 20 so minutes? I think in 20 minutes he went and like found someone who had these pamphlets. That's the only thing I can figure, right? Yeah. But the crazier thing is that the magistrates look at this pamphlet and then seem unsure if they do in fact have a right to proceed. And they spend the rest of the day debating the matter. What is in this pamphlet? I have no idea. And I wish to God that I knew. <laughs> That's so weird. It's bizarre. This is the strangest, one of the strangest things about this story. Um, one of the only like really funny things about this story too is just like this mysterious pamphlet. That we'll never know about. We'll never know. Um, so after all the witnesses have been called, McConville explains to the two magistrates what constitutes manslaughter, what uh, is incitement, what's murder, and so on, and he gives his opinion to them. He explains this after? Yes. <laughs> also, a little upsetting that he has to explain it to the judges at all, right? Yeah. Presumably they're supposed to be the people in the room who know. Well, they should also know how much authority they have, but clearly they don't. No. They don't seem- like, it just feels like they're just two guys who they just grabbed. I don't know if they're used to just, like- more minor issues or i have Weird. no idea um but mcconville says that he believes that warrant should be drawn up and then he leaves them to deliberate presumably with some difficulty since they don't <laughs> speak the same language um and the two end up disagreeing on whether or not um warrants should be drawn for some or all um so mcconville sends these results to archibald and ultimately nothing is done oh no even the British office, uh, the foreign office, wanted a prosecution of the men who did this to Goulet. And, but the, the chief judge on the ground or the chief prosecutor refused to lay charges, right? Um, and and it, that's one of those other, you know, what if questions, you know, what if they had laid charges against yeah. him, against those men? Um you know, there's a question as to whether there would have been some kind of mutiny of the soldiers in the ranks. Um, but but what it made clear was that there was no justice to be found in Red River um, at that time. And that the men in the soldiers were operating with impunity. So there was no one ever held to account for Elzir Goulet. And his family, as I previously reiterated, suffered more, you know, a huge amount. And Goulet's death confirmed that it was not safe to be Métis in or around Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, a pretty clear message. Yeah. It also confirmed to the volunteers that they can conduct themselves however they wanted without consequence. Right, yeah. Um, and during this time, the volunteers from the Wolseley expedition have basically been hanging around with nothing to do. Right? Yeah. Like, there's no kind of clear message of what they're meant to be doing. Well, there was some source that was, like, after 3 p.m. when they were off duty, they just went into town and drank. Yeah, and, like, even Archibald complains about this. He's like, I've got all these men who are, like, nominally under my control, and they don't have anything to do. And they've all and... come here with an agenda, for the most part, right? Like, Yeah, like, two-thirds of them have come here with revenge in mind. And they had already previous to this been violent like right off the bat there had been like nighttime attacks on people and settlements 
But the pattern of violence definitely worsens, I would say, after the inquest. And well, I guess now they have permission, effectively, exactly. right? Yeah, they're they're they've been given judicial permission to do whatever they want to stone a man to death, effectively. Um, the violence also did not end after the provincial elections. It didn't end after Schultz is elected to parliament. Um, it didn't even end after the force was officially disbanded. Because all the men stay. Yeah. And so I'll tell you a little bit about some of that violence. So in February of 1871, an anonymous French-speaking source wrote to the St. Paul Daily Press. They said, Our country people cannot visit Winnipeg without being insulted, if not personally abused, by the soldier mob. They defy all law and authority, civil and military. Um, here are a few examples just from the first half of 1871. A man named Toussaint Vaudry um, is at home with his widowed mother and three sisters when a volunteer entered the house and made, quote, insulting propositions to the ladies. Uh, Vaudry made him leave, but the volunteer returned to the home with ten other men and beat him nearly to death. Jeez. For this, four volunteers were charged with aggravated assault and battery and, char and fined $40. Um, Andre No, who he's come up a little bit in yeah. this. He had been a member of the court-martial. Um, he's spotted by Canadian volunteers at an inn in Pemina, so even, like, a ways away. Yeah. And he is punched and hit with their bayonets. He flees, trying to get across the border, actually, but he is overtaken, beaten again, and left outside in the snow for dead. Oh, God. Um, fortunately, he's found by his friends, who bring him home, and he recovers. Um, there's an attempt to burn down the offices of the Manitoban newspaper. Um, which is kind of whatever talk down. We'll talk about. We'll talk about I'll, some of these. Yeah. I'll talk about a different uh, newspaper thing in the next episode. So there's more attacks on the Manitoban. I think. Oh, that's yeah. oh, so many papers. Um, James Wick Taylor, who is the American consul at Fort Garry, so he's not even related to any of this in any way. He's you know an American diplomat yep. essentially. He is attacked by a drunken volunteer. Um, and he's just walking down Main Street when a drunken soldier accosts him and hits him with a stick when Taylor ignores him. Um, fortunately, he's not injured. It just kind of gets his hat. But what he writes is, Outrages upon the French population are of daily occurrence, often most flagrant and cowardly in their character. Um, and it's this that um, prompts the New York Times to call what's happening in Red River a reign of terror. So it reaches New York. Yes. Um, on May 23rd, this is a really awful one, um, six volunteers break into the tent of an indigenous family. They pull out the husband and then rape the wife and daughter oh, who God. are present. She complains to the police and identifies one of her attackers. Nothing is done, and according to one account, their commanding officer says it is, quote, none of his business. Ugh. And finally, the last one I'll mention is that the daughter of Goulet is raped by a group of volunteers as well. So even after his death, they continue to enact this violence and revenge against this family. Um, and, you know, Jean had talked about how, like, she lays the responsibility for a lot of this squarely on, squarely at the feet of John A. MacDonald. Of course. So I think this is, a, you know, something to reckon with, not just for Manitoba, but for Canada, right? In terms of our history. MacDonald's the one that sent the expedition here. He could have called them back at any point. I'm sure at some point over the course of several years, he had heard what had happened, especially if it made it to New York. 
Yeah. And New York is calling it a reign of terror, which is a pretty big indictment of what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Like, how scary it must have been to just be Métis and living in the area. Yeah, and as, as a result of this, the face of Red River changes dramatically, right? This has previously been a place that was diverse, where people who were Protestant and Catholic, who were French-speaking and English-speaking, lived and worked together. Um, and, it, you know, it becomes unsafe for French-speaking people, spe French -speaking people to live here, mm -hmm. and for Métis people to live here. So a lot of them leave. They go west. Yeah. Um... In the meantime, by the way, I, I didn't have a great place to put this in, but Archibald is also somewhat otherwise engaged. He's negotiating Treaty 1. Right, yeah. yeah. What a busy time. Oh, yeah. Um, so he is not far away at Lower Fort Gary. Um, Which is, like, uh, at the time, I would say, a bit further removed than it is today. Yes, but certainly he could have done something to yeah. step in. But yeah. he, he is, uh, you know, he is doing something out there. Yeah. He's, he's um, meeting with... A number of indigenous leaders, I think something like a thousand indigenous people come to this meeting um, to help negotiate this treaty, um, including Henry Prince, one of the sons of Chief Peguis, who yeah. we had mentioned a couple episodes ago. Um, but back to sort of the repercussions of this reign of terror, we had, we had talked about this. There's this sort of funny disconnect when we center our story just on Riel, which is why we chose not to do this, that there's this uprising... And Riel and his cohort are so significant, but then Riel leaves. And then the story just generally ends. The story ends, and then there's Or it this... follows Riel across the border. Yes, often it follows Riel, and then there's this disconnect because we say, okay, well, if the Métis negotiated for our entrance into Canada, why is Winnipeg not a majority Métis or a majority French-speaking place today? This and is why. It's, it's, yeah, it's because people were chased out in the most violent way possible. Deliberately so. Yes. Um, and yeah, so Red River just becomes an unsafe place for, for a lot of people, not even, not even just, you know, the groups that I've mentioned, but yeah. just in general for a long time, for several years. And even then, like, you see the impacts of stuff like this going into more recent generations. Like, there are a number of, like, French families that have only recently realized they have Métis ancestry because yes, their, absolutely. like, grandparents and great-grandparents would just never admit to it because it wouldn't have been safe to. There might have been personal reasons not to, but... Yeah, well, there's an interesting thing that um, one of uh, Goulet's sons um, becomes a scholar, and he lists himself on at least one form as Scottish, which, yeah. you know, and his family was so proudly Métis, right? Yeah. But, but in an effort to... But just, like, that one, like, that couple of years really, like, cuts yeah. that whole, like, ancestry off, right? And that, like, yeah. proud family tradition. Totally. And there's never a general amnesty, by the way. No. There were these promises for kind of ages, and, and it never comes. Consequences continue for Riel and members of the provisional government. In Riel's family. Yes. Who are still in Red River. His mom and his sister and some of his siblings. There are stories about the Wolzichin going to, like, Sarah Riel's house. Or not Sarah Riel, but his mother's house. Yeah. And, like, interrogating them and the sister and, like, sneaking up at night. Yeah. No, there are... Yeah, I mean, like I said about Goulet's daughter as well. There are really awful repercussions for their families as well. Mm -hmm. In you know, these are like, war crimes, quite blatantly. Um, and I'll say, too, that um, a lot of the information we have about the death of Thomas Scott comes from witnesses in the trial of Ambroise Lepine, who is tried some years later, I think 1874, 1875, yeah. so kind of near the end of when some of this violence is peering off a little bit. Because everyone's gone. Yeah, basically, right? Um, 
but he's prosecuted by someone that we will get to know very well in the next episode. Yeah. By a certain Francis Cornish. Yeah, our resident dirtbag mayor. Yes. Who is also, God, he's friends with Schultz, if that tells you, like, anything. Those two were peas in a pod. Yeah, so that is what we'll get to next time. We'll talk about Winnipeg's first dirtbag mayor. (laughs) Oh, God. Awful. Awful guy. We'll talk about Winnipeg's, like, first steps towards becoming a city. There'll be a lot of overlap between the people we heard in this episode and then people going into sort of Winnipeg's early civic government. Yeah, and I think... Do you think that episode will be a little bit less of a bummer than this one? I think so. Okay, good. So we're sorry about this episode being a bummer, but it's a really important history. It's, I don't think you get to the rest of Winnipeg without explaining why all of those Métis and just people leave. Yes. Yeah. This is why the city looks the way it does. It's deliberate. It is at the hands of the Canadian government who wanted it to look this way. Yeah. And it's a story that often gets left out when we talk about Winnipeg and Manitoba's founding is... Often it's like, Riel was the first one, and he's gone, and things were great. Yes, yeah, and I think we'll be covering more of those stories throughout this series of why does Winnipeg look the way it does today, Mm -hmm. and sometimes those are good things where people tried to build things that helped improve the city, and other times it's just... People acting flagrantly in their own self-interest to the detriment of everyone. years of violence. But if you want to know more about, like, local Métis history, uh, there's a book called Rooster Town about uh, the Métis settlement near sort of Grand Park today. Mm Mm-hmm. So you can check that out if you want to know more. That'll be probably an episode way down the line. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Rooster Town is in the plans for an episode. Um, like we said, you should definitely read The Northwest is Our Mother. Thanks again to Jean Taye. Um, I think we're also going to put up that full interview on our Patreon. It was a phenomenal interview. It was a phenomenal interview. We talked for, I can't remember how long, more than an hour for sure. <laughs> and there was so much that I, I couldn't fit into this episode that was just like so insightful yeah. and so wonderful. yeah that'll be up for free on our patreon so that'll uh, patreon.com forward slash one great history yeah and um otherwise um if you want to find us on social media we're on facebook and instagram at one great history and on twitter at the number one great history yeah and then you can visit our website uh, onegreathistory.wordpress.com for all of our sources and additional information you can read a write-up on the episode in the winnipeg free press uh thank you so much to the Winnipeg Free Press, the Manitoba Historical Society, and the Winnipeg Foundation for their support. And we'll see you next time.